welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Good morning. I'd like to welcome those of you who have joined us over the internet in our live streaming worship service from the Hayward Seventh-day Adventist Church today with the 1888 message dynamic. At the close of our worship service today, we're going to receive an offering at the door uh, for ADRA Relief Fund in specifically ministering to the victims of the Haiti earthquake. And there is a special offering that the church uh, worldwide is going to be receiving on that, uh, soon to be announced. But as the Hayward Church, we want to be ahead of the curve on that and receive that offering at the close of our service today. You know, there aren't any words, are there, to really describe uh, what's happening in Haiti. We hear these reports of tens of thousands of people who've been swept into eternity without a moment's warning. And now the surviving multitudes are not only bereaving, but they're trying to live and exist utterly homeless. And whether they believe in voodoo or no God or the God who is the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Creator and Redeemer, I think the question still haunts everybody. Why does God permit such horror? The Bible is not helpless in times of disaster such as this. The dead are in God's care. It's the horror now of the survivors that is our heart problem and burden. We need to understand that this disaster is something of an extenuation of the cataclysm that overwhelmed this earth in Noah's flood. We call it Noah's flood, but we shouldn't blame Noah for it. He was a preacher of righteousness who warned people about the flood soon to come. And it is the flood, really, that uh, originated all of the earthquakes that the earth has suffered ever since. In other words, we understand from the Bible that the earth really suffered a mortal wound at the time of the flood, and there is really no remedy for it. It will continue on in its mortal throes until the Lord comes and recreates it, a new heaven and a new earth. That's why we need a new place to live on. The earth is being literally torn apart, and unfortunately, Some of us have built up our living on fault zones unbeknownst to us, and we can suddenly become victims of the rending of the earth, can't we? Well, that's the reason. I guess the underlying reason for earthquakes is the flood uh, some thousands of years ago. But whatever sinful guilt anyone can say that these tragic uh, people had acquired, I don't think that we should try to say Uh, or assign their misery as a result of sin. I think as human beings, all of us share in the problem of sin equally. And uh, 
It brings us to our knees when we see others suffering. But for the grace of God, we too would be in a similar circumstance. The the Lamentations of Jeremiah are God's textbooks for disaster survivors. In Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 22, the people of Jerusalem had suffered the most horrible defeat and destruction where they just lost everything. And after lamenting their utter tragedy, this is what the prophet wrote. And these words, whenever I go to visit my father, every morning, as soon as he gets up, he walks downstairs and he sits down. And I may have gotten up a little bit before him and I'm sitting there. But he starts, he repeats these words verbatim by memory. Here they are. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. In verse 40, let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. You know, the flood was a curse to the whole earth from which it has never completely recovered. The earth was mortally wounded. It needs to be completely recreated. That must come when the Lord Jesus returns. And I say the Lord's Soon return ought to be sooner rather than later. How about you? And that's why those who ponder the teachings of the Bible long for the promised second coming of the Savior of the world. Whatever days of peace and pleasure that we are granted here, let us thank God for them, realizing that even our next breath is a gift of his much more abounding grace. And let us give as best we can to send relief to those who suffer And then let us look at everything that we have in a new light. Nothing we have liked to call ours is ours. It is lent us in trust to the use of the good of others. But we're struggling here to find something good to say about the calamity in Haiti. Just imagine hundreds of thousands of people's homes devastated. We, we never thought that we would see such things as this before the outpouring of the seven last plagues of Revelation chapter 16. Uh, can we find some good news? And the answer to this is yes. There are innumerable acts of kindness that are being done by people, even strangers. So that tells us that the Holy Spirit has not yet been withdrawn from this earth. And we can be thankful for that. There is evidence that the love of God is still active. And in the disasters that are described by the prophet Ezekiel, in which he calls them woes, he usually ended up, after the woes of giving a promise, by saying, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. So in the midst of the woes and the tragedies and the disasters of this earth, we hear those words echoing from above. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord. It's always, yes, always good news to learn to know the Lord. You know, even in the final lake of fire at the end of the thousand years, in Revelation 20 there, that lake of fire really demonstrates the mercy of the Lord, because the lost, who of their own volition will want to enter into that lake of fire, will say, thank you for that lake 
rather than I having to exist forever in a tortured consciousness of my own utter self-condemnation. They will welcome destruction. They will welcome destruction. They'll say, thank you, Lord, for giving me that out. Well, the question is, is God sending these disasters? Is Port-au-Prince more wicked than other great cities and so deserving of what came upon it? Well, the answer to that question is in Luke chapter 13 and verse 2, because that same question was asked of Jesus after a local disaster happened in his day. Luke 13 verse 2 says, Do you suppose, Jesus says, that these Galileans were worse sinners than other Galileans because they suffered such things? And he answered, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus didn't didn't bring that disaster, but he brought good out of it for all of the world to learn. And there is a precious good news in this remark of Jesus that it is possible for all of us to repent because repentance is a universal gift that the Holy Spirit tries to give us if we will believe and receive the gift. This this painful disaster with worldwide television coverage educates all in a Another happy lesson about reality. It's another proof of God's love. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 7, it says, We brought nothing into this world. And it is certain that we can carry nothing out. You know, when we evacuate this world, we won't even be able to carry our papers with us our driver's license, our credit cards. But Paul continues, and having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Precious contentment with nothing but the shirt on your back. Enjoy it today, will you? Enjoy it today. Well, it took an earthquake to alert a man to ask a very important question in Acts chapter 16. After an earthquake, he said, What must I do to be saved? And he was on the verge of of suicide. He was about to kill himself. But Paul had told him not to do that, not to commit suicide. I'll tell you, that's ultimate health reform. Don't commit suicide. Yeah. Yeah. Value the life God's given to you. Stop any unhealthful practice. Let your mind be clear so you can understand the voice of God. Stop shortening your life, you see. Now, many evangelists will try to answer that man's question, what must I do to be saved, by telling them what they must do to be saved. But Paul's immediate answer was, in verse 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not something you do. It's something that you believe. What does it mean to believe? It's something that you do with the heart. 
Your, your choice is involved. Believing is not some kind of ultimate uh, terrorism where God just scares you out of your wits and finally you say, I'm going to reform. I'm going to believe. I've got religion. You know, no, faith is a heart appreciation of the love of God. And that is involved in that text, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loved, God gives, and then what follows? That whosoever believeth, and that's faith. So faith is a heart appreciation of God's giving and God's loving. Do you see that? It is not some kind of terrorism where God freaks us out and we say, okay, all right, you got my attention. I'm going to believe now. That's not faith, according to the Bible. So there's a better motivation for for serving the Lord, pondering the love of God, letting that love come in, not hindering it, and allowing that love to come into the life, cast out fear. Cast it out. There's a better motivation for serving the Lord than the terrors of the lake of fire, and it involves that love. But believing also includes, yes, doing, for Jesus says, come unto me. All ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you can't come unless you humble your proud heart, for he is meek and lowly in heart, he adds. And that repels, that either repels or it attracts you. You see? You behold the meek and the lowly one, and you either say, well, I don't want anything to do with that, or it will attract you. And he who comes to God must believe that he exists, Paul says in Hebrews eleven six, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You simply must believe that he is already your friend and also your savior from the second death. And then you join the believing thief who is crucified with Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then someone says, oh, you mean I have to join that kind of riffraff people, that thief on the cross, people like that? Yes, because that's where we all belong with the thief on the cross. The only other alternative is to join the the other thief who was crucified with Jesus but never called upon the Lord. So we cannot evade making this choice. The whole world will eventually stand with one or the other, and this will be included in the mark of the beast or seal of God choice that all will make. So let's permit, shall we? Let's permit the Lord to draw us by his love and not resist him in his office work. In 1906, the, the Titanic disaster was still about six years away, but now historians say that San Francisco's pride and joy in 1906 was the Palace Hotel. And so it was kind of the Titanic of the day. It was built ostensibly to be earthquake-proof. San Francisco, you know, had not... Uh, known past earthquakes. Well, they had known past earthquakes, but in only a few hours on April the 18th of 1906, the palace 
was in ruins. And when the people saw it burn, they knew that their beloved city was doomed. And the fires that ensued from the earthquake were worse than the quake itself. Why would a God of love permit such a horrendous disaster upon San Francisco? The death count was close to that of our 9-11 back in 2001. Uh, and in, that, in those days, 1906, there was no Al-Qaeda to blame. And so people blamed God for it. And now a century later, the seismologists warn that another big quake is due any time and still very little preparation has been made for it. We, when we stop to reason, we begin to realize that the pride and the greed of man made the 1906 disaster worse than it needed to be because previous quakes had destroyed much of the city. There was a quake in 1864, in 1898, and so you know what? They just bulldozed all of the rubble from those quakes Uh, dumped them into the bay, only to create new land upon which to build new structures. More city foolishly erected upon sinking landfill. And it was a lethal building land. It It was lethal building on that kind of a land. Every square inch seemed valuable for putting buildings on. Even dirt that filled in lakes was built on. And it liquefied in the quake of 1906. California was booming. San Francisco was where wealth came easily. And money for buildings seemed unlimited. And heaven was being built here on earth. And God was pretty well forgotten about. Well, let's not forget about God today. He has indeed promised to create a new heavens and a new earth but not before the second coming of Christ. And the earth is fragile like an old garment that is worn out, and God has not promised to recreate those earthquake faults now, nor stop the formation of hurricanes or tornadoes now, but he has promised to care for those who dwell in the secret place of prayer with him and are content having food and raiment, though living among popular extravagance. If God calls you to live and to work in the equivalent of San Francisco, then do so as a missionary for him. And there are many thoughtful Muslims who are asking, well, why does Allah permit such terrible disasters and horrendous earthquakes in Pakistan and various Pacific islands? And the media tell of people that are pinned under concrete wreckage, crying out piteously, Allah, hear us, until the cries cease. At the same time, many thoughtful Christians ask, why does God, the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, of whom the Bible says God is love, why does he permit these awful things like tsunamis and hurricanes and earthquakes to say nothing of our wars that we humans perpetrate and create? All such questions inevitably revert to that very great question, why did the loving creator of the world permit the flood in Noah's day? Because it just upset the earth's equilibrium. And in that history, we see the portrayal of the government of God in relation to the fallen and sinful 
humanity. God did not permit the flood to come until 120 years. Through Noah, he had proclaimed a message of the righteousness which is according to faith for 120 years. But unbelieving, rebellious human beings had become a curse to themselves. Genesis 6.11 says, The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And now only a small portion of the earth's surface is inhabitable. For again, the earth also is defiled under its inhabitants because they have broken the everlasting covenant. And that is a guilt that we all share. God purposes that that same message of righteousness by faith will be again proclaimed worldwide. Let's be clear about it and absolutely certain It is the prince of this world who wreaks this havoc upon the earth. It is not Jesus Christ. He, the prince of this world, is the enemy of Christ. The prince of the power of the air, it says in Ephesians 2, verse 2. Fox News noted that many common people look upon all of these terrible disasters since the Christmas tsunami in Guam, our own Katrina, Rita, and now this terrible earthquake in Haiti as signs of the times. Experts discuss disaster theology, and we are among the survivors who through our televisions and our news media, we witness what the Bible says, the destruction that wasteth at noonday when a thousand fall at our side and 10,000 at our right hand, but it has not come nigh us. It is only with our eyes that we behold and see these horrors. No, we do not think that those who perished in the cataclysm, like the schoolgirls with their pigtails and their school uniforms on, were more wicked than are we. All we know for sure is that we are alive and well, and 50,000 people just as good or worthy as any of us have perished. Something else we know for sure, as in the days of Jeremiah, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not Our life and all that we have is a gift of God's much more abounding grace. And now let us confess this, that henceforth we shall not live unto ourselves, but unto him who died for us and rose again. There's a statement, very thought-provoking and apparently timeless in its application, written by the servant of the Lord in the Great Controversy, page 36. It says, God does not stand toward the sinner as an executioner of the sentence against transgression. I want you to note that the statement does not say that God is not an executioner. That is left open. The point is that he does not stand toward the sinner in that capacity. He does not want to appear to the sinner as an executioner and thus coerce 
by fear, what he would will only by his love. The point is, we are not to present God to the sinner as the executioner who will carry out that sentence is not God's, in God's soul-winning plan. And yet we hasten to add that God is not deceiving the unreconciled sinner uh, with advertising cleverness. Rightly understood, even God's wrath is an expression of his soul-winning love. How to express this is our task. It is not to deny that God will be the executioner. Rather, how are we going to present him standing toward the sinner? There are very serious arguments that can be put out in support of, well, we ought to set God forth as fear motivating us by fear. And it's not wholly and necessarily negative. A a perfectly healthy person with no um, neuroses, I think, will look both ways before they cross the street, don't you? It's common sense. Nor can it be denied that throughout the 6,000-plus years of human history, God's inspired servants have often employed fear as their motivation tool for inducing sinners to respond. The Old Testament prophets frequently speak of God destroying nations and people. And there's no question that God sent the flood to destroy sinners and also the fires that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah and destroyed the Egyptians at the Red Sea crossing. The question that concerns us in these last days as God's people is what appeal will God use in the final lightning of this earth with his glory? It's to be a voice that is to sound from heaven with an unprecedented power in Revelation 18, verse 2, where it says, Come out of her, or Babylon, my people. Now, is the motivation to be associated with a clearly, uniquely uplifting of the cross of Christ, or is it to be a fear motivation? I would say that God is revealing himself more clearly to us after 6,000 years of the history of sin and the gospel, that we ought to have a more clearer, mature understanding of the gospel of God so that we will see that we must transcend the fear motivation and present to Babylon the agape motivation and uplift higher and higher the cross of Christ. The third angel's message in verity seems to me to be the love motivation. Does the cleansing of the sanctuary ministry of our high priest include a clearer concept of the atonement that God's people as a body have perceived in the past? And if so, will it result in a more complete reconciliation with God than has ever in the past been experienced by God's people as a body? And again, if so, will it be a clear revelation of the agape of Christ? It must be true that nothing less can achieve such an unprecedented reconciliation of alienated hearts to God. This is a most precious message. It would follow that a heart motivation that is imposed by agape does figure largely in the power that is inherent in the third angel's message and verity that God has given to us. The reason must be that the cleansing of the sanctuary 
accomplishes a final atonement, which is seen as an ultimate heart experience of reconciliation with God. And that message is inherent in 2 Corinthians 5.14, Be ye reconciled to God. Be ye reconciled to God. How is that accomplished? By comprehending the cross of Christ. Comprehending it. The context of 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ constraineth us, it motivates us, but in this final day of atonement, it's not just an extremist apostle that is so motivated, Paul who wrote those words, it's a corporate body of believers who are motivated and constrained by the love of God. Never before has this happened with a body of people. Laodicea has something to learn, finally, and see after 6,000 years of the history of sin and the gospel. We are to judge how that one died for all. The cross has to become the focus of the third angel's message in verity. And what does the following motivation accomplish? It accomplishes an unprecedented degree of consecration that is sensed by all of the saints. Those who live can no longer live unto themselves. The only solution to the problem of corporate lukewarmness. This would seem to be the motivation that constrains the corporate body of believers to follow the Lamb, the crucified Christ, whithersoever he goeth, The context indicates that be ye reconciled to God experience depends on a clear comprehension of how God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, how he took upon himself our our trespasses. And so the last rays of light to shine upon this dark world, we are told, will therefore be a revelation of God's character of love. What message can reconcile the alienated world-loving, self-centered, lukewarm heart to God unless a clearer understanding of the gospel becomes involved, the result must inevitably be further lukewarmness of devotion perpetuated generation after generation for centuries more. We continuously have to deal with this question, why does God permit suffering? We hear it from the lips of even God's own people. Why do we even need to defend God? We ought to be at a point as God's people who understand the third angel's message where we don't have to defend the character of God to his people. But we find ourselves in that position. Why is that? It's a a failure on our part to see and appreciate something as revealed in the cross of Christ regarding his agape love. And if that settles in deeply, into our hearts and into our minds, no matter what disaster, tragedy that comes upon this world, either far off or right in our home, the love of God will not cause us to question the character of God and blame him for why he allowed or permitted this to happen. Doesn't that seem to be the bottom line of everything? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him said Job. I witnessed my mother die in a state of unrest 
and agony. Easy to ask the question, why does God permit my mother to go through that? You know? I spent the last couple of nights uh, sleepless out there in the living room, on the sofa, and she was over there in the hospital bed. And she would cry out repeatedly, awakening me, get me up, I've got to go sit. Now put me back into bed, get me up. And to watch that restlessness and that lack of peace with my mother. Why does God permit this? Well, dear friends, a people who are settled into the truth of the love of God and sealed by it will not blame God for anything, whether far off or nigh at hand, that has come. I tell you, it is the devil that has brought all of this tragedy upon this earth because ultimately he is responsible for sin. And if you want to track down the reason for the flood, it was the devil bringing sin into this world. And that's why the world has been struck with this mortal blow structurally. And we live on the Hayward Fault. We know what that structure is, don't we? They had to move City Hall out of this high-rise over here because it was right on the fault. So we know what... We went through the 89 earthquake, didn't we? And we know what it's like to have our freeway system shut down, our economic life disrupted, and our friends and our neighbors die on the freeways and on the bridges. Of our, of our traveling system around here. But dear friends, a people who understand and comprehend the third angel's message will not... How can we bring ourselves to charge God with tragedy and the results of sin? God hates sin. Wants to deliver us from it. Bring ultimate peace and reconciliation to our hearts. How can that ever happen as, as long as these underlying questions reside in our hearts? Why, God, do you permit disasters? Implying we're blaming him for it. When we ought to know the answer to that question. It's the devil who has brought all of this as a consequence of sin upon the earth and his agencies. God's goodness is manifested in the midst of tragedy when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he thought, was tempted to think that it's God who has brought all of this upon my head. He felt God forsaken, just like we do in the midst of our tragedy. He bridged the gulf of that great temptation by faith. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He heard. It is finished. He triumphed in faith. He overcame, blaming God for what had come upon him. And dear friends, a people who understand the cross and God's love will come into such close ties and bonds of agape with him that the thought won't cross their minds anymore. Why, God, have you permitted this? They'll know the answer to that question. And they'll see their deliverance. As a thousand are falling on their right hand, ten thousand on their left, God will deliver us. Maybe with the shirt on their back, that's it. Won't be able to take all those papers I got piled up at home with me. All those files that I've organized for years and years and years, you know. Oh boy, they're going to be just a jumbled mess. And my computer's going to crash on me, you know. 
irretrievably, and all the backup systems. Horror of horrors, Steve. But Paul's life and your life is going to hid, be hid in God in Christ Jesus. Amen. And that's what it counts, isn't it, in the end? Amen. God bless. Join us again next time for the Word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.